Good morning, Mission Hill family. Let me get the mic closer to my mouth. All right, I think that's, that's good. That's good. Good morning. My name is Pastor Brent, as Chase just said on the video. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. Who's ready for a good old heaping helping of sexual purity in the Bible? Yeah, I'm sure everyone is. I can tell you're all excited. Uh, it's, actually, like, it's, it's actually an unspoken rule that if you come up on a passage that involves sex in any way, you just kind of give it to the youth pastor. And that is me. I am the youth pastor. So here we are. It's going to be awesome. Um, we are going to be in Leviticus chapter 18 through 20 today. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible there, we're going to be reading from Leviticus 18, 1 through 5 to begin with. But as you're doing that, I'm going to give just kind of a recap of what's going on since we started this. If you're new here or if you maybe missed a Sunday or two, just a quick recap. We started off by going through chapters 1 through 6, where we see God instilling the sacrifice system in Israel. And then Chase took us through the story of Nadab and Abihu, and they're the sons of Aaron. They enter into God's presence with a bad offering, and because of that, they're consumed by God. And then Joel took us through chapters 11 through 15, where we see that God has put rhythms of life in the lives of the Israelites for the purpose of pointing them to God and his holiness. And then last week, Joel took us through the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. And so if you've been following along in Leviticus, you know there's a lot of laws. We're going to be going through even more laws today. But uh, as I've been thinking about laws, I actually have a few laws here that I'd like to share with you this morning. These are real laws. These are laws that exist in America, okay? Um, Did you know that in Alabama, it is illegal to drive blindfolded. Kind of seems like a no-brainer to me. I feel like that should be illegal anywhere. Um, But in Louisiana, it's illegal to send a surprise pizza to someone. It is considered harassment. You will get arrested. So if you're in Louisiana, do not send pizzas to anybody unless they know about it. In Illinois, it's illegal to eat in a place that's on fire. Just so you know. Uh, Also, in Connecticut, all pickles must bounce. They must bounce, okay? Check your pickles if you're from Connecticut. In Arizona, I'm sorry to say, but your donkey cannot sleep in your tub. And finally, and this one's my personal favorite, from the great state of Maryland, you are not allowed to bring your pet lion to the movie theaters. I I love that one. That's my all-time favorite. And so if you're like me, you listen to these laws, you hear these laws, and you're thinking to yourself, Why? Like, why is that in there? And that's a good question. That's a question you should be asking. Why? Because, and this is why, it's because you know somebody someday was like, man, I really want to go watch the new Die Hard movie, but no one wants to watch my pet lion, so you're coming with. Like, someone brought a lion to the movie theater, and that's why there's a law about it, right? You just know that somebody went to Cheesecake Factory one day, they got a cheeseburger, and because it's like 15 bucks to get a cheeseburger at Cheesecake Factory, because their burgers are amazing, but you go there and you eat it, and somehow the building caught on fire, and rather than give up his food, he sat there, and he got burned, and then he sued Cheesecake Factory because, well, nobody told him the building was on fire. So that's their fault. I don't, I don't know if that actually happened. I made that part up. But the point is that all of these laws have a purpose behind them. There's a reason why you can't bring a tiger or a lion or probably any ferocious animal, to a movie theater, and that's because someone tried it one time. And so there's laws, the laws that we have, 
There's a purpose behind them, and it's the same for the laws in chapters 18 through 20. We're going to touch on them a little bit, but if you're like me, you read through Leviticus, you're anywhere in the Bible where you come up to laws, and you might get a little bored immediately, and so your, your temptation is going to be to just shoot through them or skip over them altogether to get to a part that's you know, more exciting, like the Gospels. But the truth is that if we skip past the laws, if we skip past this part of the Bible, we're missing out on something that the Bible is trying to communicate. And what the Bible is trying to communicate through the laws that we're going through this morning is this, is that God is holy, and so we are holy, and so we have to look like it. God is holy, so we are holy, and so we look like it. Now here, again, as uh, Peter said earlier at Mission Hill, we like to stand when we read God's Word. So if you are able to, I would ask that you would stand with me as we read Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Leviticus chapter 18, 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. and I pray that you would give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought as we work through your word this morning. I pray that you give us all ears to hear and hearts that are wanting to change. I pray that you give us hearts that would be transformed by the power of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would get me out of the way and that you would preach in my place. I pray that anything that might come from me would be forgotten, but anything that comes from you, Holy Spirit, that it would convict, it would encourage, it would draw people closer to you and transform us more into your image, Jesus. Be with us during this time in your name. Amen. All right, so God is holy, therefore we are holy, and so we are called to look like it. What does this mean? In order to figure out, flesh that out a little bit more, we need to talk about the purposes behind the laws that we see in 18 through 20. The first purpose is the one that's probably a little more obvious, and that is the fact that God's laws set his people apart. God's laws set his people apart. A really quick 30,000-foot summary of what's going on, chapter 18 is all about sexual purity. All about it. You get, there's like a, a, an increased emphasis on forbidding incest, but there's also laws about forbidding bestiality, having intercourse with an animal. Um, there's also laws against forbidding homosexuality as well. Chapter 19, we get a bunch of laws about how to love your neighbor well and how to love the alien and the refugee that is also dwelling in your land. And then in chapter 20, we get those same laws again, but there's added emphasis on the severity of the punishment should you break those laws. But all of these laws are situated around the command that we see here in verses 1 through 5. And this is a command that's given throughout 18, 19, and 20. And that command is to not look like the nations surrounding Israel. Not to keep the statutes of Egypt. Don't keep the practices of Canaan. They have their own statutes. In other words, what God is doing is that he's making Israel morally holy. Now, what do I mean by morally holy? What I mean by that is that these laws are meant to give Israel a moral standard that sets them apart from the nations surrounding them. And so when you read chapter 18, 19, and 20, you can rightly assume that if there's a law forbidding something, 
It's because the nations are doing the thing that's being forbidden. So for example, when you read through chapter 18's laws on forbidding incest, you can rightly assume that the nations around Israel are doing that, and you would be right. In Egypt, it was super common for pharaohs and kings to marry their sisters, their mothers, their stepmothers, their aunts, in order to keep their bloodline on the throne. You can also rightly assume that if God is forbidding child sacrifice, it's because the nations are practicing child sacrifice, and you would be right. There were like two really common ways that they would, they would practice it. One is they would just throw their kids into the fire. But another way that they would do it is they would build these giant metal statues that's made to look like their God, and they'd have their hands out like this, and they would light a fire underneath their hands until their hands became glowing red hot. And they would take their children, and they'd place it in the hands, and then they'd slow roast them to death. That was what was going on in the nations surrounding Israel. When you read of God forbidding the Israelites from forbidding them from meeting up with spiritualists and uh, mediums and necromancers, you can rightly assume that the other nations are doing it as well. And they were. Because in the other nations, you're worshiping gods, you're trying to get them to communicate with you. But if the gods aren't happy with you, they're not going to talk to you. And so what do you do? You go and talk to somebody who can speak to the dead. So when you read these, you can rightly assume that these laws are in place because that's what's going on in the, the nations around them. It's as if God is saying, don't sleep with your siblings like the Egyptians do. Don't sacrifice your children like the Canaanites do. Don't consult mediums and spiritualists like the nations do. You're not the nations. You are holy. You are my people because I am holy. And it can be really tempting for us, I think, to go and kind of laugh or maybe even like kind of push it away because we think we've come so far away from, you know, the primitive culture of that time. You know, we don't, we don't really have to deal with this kind of stuff anymore, but I would disagree. I think we may not sacrifice our children over burning hands on a metal statue, but we will sacrifice our children by taking them out before they're even born. I think we can laugh about, or maybe we can think that somehow in America we have some kind of sexual awakening, but then we have people like Jeffrey Epstein and people who will abuse their power to abuse people sexually. I think we can laugh and say that maybe we don't worship statues made of gold and stone, but we will worship our screens. We will worship the people we see on them. We'll worship the lives that maybe we don't have, but maybe we want. God's law is meant to set his people apart. The people of God are not to look like the people of the world. In fact, when God comes in judgment on Israel in the Old Testament, a lot of times he'll tell them it's because they look like the people around them. God does not take kindly when he can't distinguish his people from the people of the world. So we have to ask ourselves this question, church. We have to ask ourselves, are we more worried about looking like a follower of Jesus? Or are we more worried about looking like the perfect Instagram mom or the perfect Instagram dad? Are we more worried about looking like a follower of Jesus? Or are we more worried about looking like an American? Are we more worried about looking like a jock or a nerd or a sports fan or a car guy? Are we more worried about looking successful or powerful? Or are we more worried about looking like followers of Jesus? Because the truth is, if someone you know can identify you as anything other than a Christian first, that's an issue. That's because you're starting to look like something more than you're looking like a follower of Jesus. If you have ever equated somebody's eternal salvation or whether or not they're a follower of Jesus based on how they vote, an issue. 
I think you're looking more like a Republican or a Democrat than you are a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of God doesn't look like any kingdom in this world. And therefore, we are not to look like any kingdom in this world. And so, as Christians, we're not meant to perfectly fit into any group. We're not meant to perfectly fit into any role. Case in point, the Bible is clear that the Lord loves the unborn and he loves the refugee, the alien, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In fact, literally, the laws in chapters 18 through 20, there is a law that says that the Israelites are not allowed to reap all of their crops. They have to leave some on the edges for the purpose of the people who are poor, the people who don't live in Israel, the people who are aliens. They're supposed to leave their crops so that the people who are poor and need it won't go hungry. And this is a big deal. That would have hurt people's wallets back then. But it's in their law. They're meant to care for the alien and the poor. And so, to me, if I find it kind of rare nowadays to find people who value both equally. A lot of times it's either one or the other. Either Sometimes it's, you know, everybody's welcome in this country, whether you're legal or illegal, totally fine. Refugees are totally welcome. We welcome everybody except those who are unborn. You're just a clump of cells, and I get to do with you what I choose. But the other side is true, too. Sometimes we can find ourselves crusading for the unborn, and that's great because that's biblical. We love the unborn. They're living, they're babies, they're human life, and God values them. But if you find yourself being separated at the border because you're illegal, separated from your families, well, that's on you. Like, that's your fault. You should have known better. God doesn't distinguish between life. God is a God of life. He loves all life. And as his followers, we are called to love life as well. We are not meant to look like the people of the world. And to tell you the truth, I am not immune to this. Neither are the other pastors. All of us will tell you that we fall into this on probably a daily basis. To be honest, it's not just about political issues. It's about your daily demeanor. For myself, nothing hurts me worse than when I tell someone I'm a Christian and they're surprised by it. That hurts. But the truth is that I'm a very unconfrontational person. I also like to make people feel comfortable, and so I will compromise my Christian witness to make someone else feel comfortable. But then they'll hear that I'm a Christian and be like, whoa, I totally didn't know that you were a Christian. You were laughing at, I don't know, my dirty jokes or whatever. That's an issue in my life. Just because we're your pastors, we're not immune to this. We're not meant to look like the people of the world. God's law sets his people apart. But God's law also reveals who he is. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get the point. I'm supposed to look countercultural to whatever culture I find myself in at the time. Yes and no. The truth is, is that the law isn't purely reactionary. And what I mean by that is it's not like God was sitting in his heavenly throne room, he had a big book open, and he looked over at this one nation and was like, oh, what they're doing kind of annoys me. I don't want Israel to do that because Israel's cool and I like them. So, boop, put the law down. It's not like he was looking at the Hittites and we're like, man, what you're doing is kind of dumb and I want Israel to look smart, so I'm just going to write it down in a book. That's not what's happening. It's not purely reactional. In Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 25, God says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. The land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. There's a moral sense to these laws. 
It's not purely reactionary. There is a moral sense to what's happening here with these laws. The truth is that what the Canaanites were doing before Israel took the land, God abhorred it. He hated it. What they were doing was against his will and his created order. So we can ask ourselves the question, what right does God have to any of this? Like, what right does he have to make the judgment call? Truth is, he has all the rights to make the judgment call. Scripture teaches us that God created everything. He created the universe and all that's in it. Because he's the creator, he makes those judgment calls. He's holy, and he's built that holiness into his creation. When he created male and female, he created them set apart. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. He created male and female to be different. He called them to come together to form one flesh. And he called them to leave their father and mother in order to do that. And so when you see scripture talking about homosexuality and how it's not part of God's created order, it's because God didn't create men to be with men and women to be with women. He created male and female to come together. When you see scripture forbidding bestiality and having intercourse with animals, it's because we weren't created for that. Male and female, men and women, we weren't created to have that relationship with animals. When you see the Bible forbidding incest, it's because male and female were meant to leave their own parents, not the same parents. When you read in the Bible about child sacrifice and how God forbids it, it's not just because God finds it mildly irritating. He hates child sacrifice. He hates it. He is a God of life. He loves life. He loves to see it thrive and multiply. When you see God forbid Israel from consulting mediums and spiritualists, it's not simply that he's annoyed with it. It's because God didn't create... Let me back that up. It's, not, it's because mediums and spiritualists, they talk to the dead. And death wasn't a part of God's created order. Moreover, God had a special relationship with Israel. He spoke to them through their prophets. He gave them his word. He gave them his law. They could literally read about him and learn who he was. They could know what their God wanted. So to come to a spiritualist or a medium and talk to them was effectively to say, I don't trust God to tell me the truth. I don't trust him to know what's actually what's right and what's wrong. Now here's the part where we, we kind of need to take just a very small sidetrack. Because as Christians and as people who interpret the Bible, who preach from the Bible, Leviticus 18 through 20 is one of those passages where we, we talk about sexuality a lot, specifically in the forbidding of homosexual relationships. And the argument typically is, well, you know, you guys make a big deal. As Christians, we make a big deal about homosexuality, but we don't make a big deal about laws that talk about, you know, wearing clothes that are made of different kinds of thread. Or we don't talk about tattoos that often. So why me up here right now, why am I making such a big deal about one set of laws but I'm not making a big deal about all of them. The truth is, is that we as, as Christians, we're not called to follow all of them. Let me explain a little bit. I have a son. I have many children, but my oldest son is Leon. And last summer, we were playing with some friends, and one of his friends threw a book across the room, and Leon like, went up and like, got in his face and was like, books are treasures. Don't throw books. And then like, if he had a mic, like, he would have dropped it walked away. And I laughed because that is verbatim what we've taught him. Our family, we value reading. And one of the ways we're trying to instill that in our children is treat books like treasures. You don't throw them. Don't rip the pages out. Don't step on them. Books are treasures. However, 
had to talk to him and be like, you can't rebuke another kid for doing that because that might not be a rule that their family has. They may value reading. They may absolutely value reading, but they may not be instilling it in the ways that we're putting it in our kids. In other words, that's a Clark family rule. That is a Clark family rule. Books are treasures. You don't mistreat them. However, last summer we were at the pool and a kid was bullying my second oldest, Cyrus. Kid was getting in his face and bullying him and Leon, the ever thirst for justice he is, ran up to this kid and got in his face and told him to stop bullying Cyrus. And I loved that. I told him I was proud of him. You make sure you do that. When your, kids, when your brother and sister are getting bullied, you step in. Because here's the thing, that is a moral rule. All of us can get behind the fact that bullying is wrong. It is treating somebody as less than what they are, and that is being made in the image of God. It's very similar to how it works in the Old Testament. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of law in the Old Testament. There's the cultural law, and there's the moral law. The cultural law is the law that governs Israel's day-to-day life as a nation, as a people. These are the laws about what food makes you clean and unclean. What animals do you touch, do you not touch? What sacrifices do you make? What kind of dress the priest is supposed to wear? What happens when your bull gores your neighbor? These are laws that deal with the culture of Israel. We are not Israelites. We are not a part of that culture, and so therefore, we don't follow their culture, their cultural rules. But there's another law, there's another category called the moral law, and that is the law that is transcendent. It is upheld for everyone all the time, no matter who you are. The moral law goes for everybody. These are the laws that are like, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bully. These are laws that everyone is expected to uphold, no matter who you are, no matter where you live. And so when you're, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you're trying to figure out, you know, what, is this law like a cultural law? Is this like a moral law? There are three really good questions that you can ask yourself. First question is, does Jesus, do Jesus and the disciples affirm this in the New Testament? If they affirm it, the good sense that it's a moral law. Another way you can say, though, is when you read through the Old Testament, pay attention to why God is judging other nations. It's rare that God judges another nation because they're mixing their thread colors. But it is very common that God will judge other nations for abusing the poor, for murdering people, for bloodlust, for greed. You can also pay attention to the severity of the punishment, depending on what, what the sin is. So for example, the reason I can get up here and I can preach to you wearing this sweet bow tie that's made of different colors, and I can talk to you about God's design for marriage and sexuality is because the forbidding of sexual immorality of all kinds is a moral law that is affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. It's affirmed by the apostles. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. It's a lot of times we can hang on that, but really, sexual immorality is anything outside marriage between one man and one woman. That goes for pornography. That goes for looking at another person with sexual desire that's not your spouse. Literally, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus and God's law take sexual immorality way more seriously than we do. God's law reveals his character. God's law reveals who he is. This is why it's really important for us to camp out on the law and read it when we come up to it in the Bible, because it reveals who he is. Because I think if we're going to be serious with ourselves, 
All of us have some kind of image of who God is. For some of us, for some of you, maybe you've made God in your own image. And you can tell if that's you because suddenly God supports literally every single issue that you support. You can read through the law and you can come up to laws that make you uncomfortable. And so you say, well, you know, my God wouldn't do that. My God doesn't, my God doesn't do that kind of stuff. My God's love. And so you jump through hoops to get the law to say what you want it to say. But that's not God. That's you in God's place. And so what we have to do is we have to come before his law with humility. We have to let it transform us. Some of us, might have, might, some of us have images of God that are purely shared with us from someone else. Instead of doing the research, instead of reading the Bible on your own and asking people for help, you're just letting other people tell you. And so you might be the kind of person that's just like, well, no, like my favorite teacher, my favorite whatever, my favorite person says that like God's misogynistic and he hates people and he's really angry all the time, so I can't worship that God. Again, we have to come to his law with humility. We have to let it change us. But then there are some of us who do that. You come to God's law and you read it and you come against something that is uncomfortable and you do the research and you say, oh, you know what? This must be like a cultural law. Maybe I'm not upheld to this, but I don't know. I'll submit it to the Lord. You might come up to a law in the Bible and you might say, you know what? This is really uncomfortable. I've done the research, but there's still this moral sense to it and I I don't know what to do with it. And so you choose to say, you know what? God, you know what's good. You know what's good. You know what's not good. I don't. So I'm going to trust you to tell me what is good. You submit yourself to him. The truth is is that there's no other God like God. Just like how God's law was unlike any other law that ever existed at that time, so too God is unlike any God that's ever existed. Sometimes you'll hear of gods in the Old Testament. There are gods that require you to sacrifice your child before they'll even deign to talk to you. But our God shows up and talks to you while you're worshiping other gods. Our God makes the first move and he approaches you in the midst of your darkness. Whereas other gods are either ashamed of their children or maybe they're trying to lift their children up to be as awesome as they are, our God gave his son so that for those of us who want it can be made right with God. And that's the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't matter if, you're, if you would have been from another nation. If you love God and if you want to be made right with him, he will make you clean. He'll offer you forgiveness. There is no other God that will give his life for you. That's the truth. There's no other God to give his life for you except for Jesus. God's law sets his people apart. God's law also reflects his character. You can learn who God is by reading his law. But there's a third one too, and that is that God is revealed when we follow him. I cannot stress to you enough how insane and probably offensive the Jewish law would have been to the nations around them. For example, I want you to pretend for a moment that you are a woman who belongs to another nation. You've gotten pregnant. You've carried a baby for nine months. The baby's born and is a boy. And you're thrilled, you're happy, but also you're terrified. Because in your nation, in your culture, you have to give him up in a year. You get a year with him, and then you have to sacrifice him. Because if you don't, your God's going to get angry with you. Your God's going to get angry with your nation. And so you've committed. 
say, you know what? I don't want God to get angry with me. I'm going to do it. A year flies by, the day before you're going to give your son up to your God, and you're freaking out. You're clutching him to your chest. You're pacing outside. You don't know what to do. You're pleading with your God, and you're not hearing anything from him. Suddenly, your friend comes up to you and hugs you, tries to console you, and you just say, I wish there was another way. And then this friend says, you know, I hear the Israelites don't kill their children. I hear that it's actually forbidden. Their God doesn't let them kill their children. Their God loves their children. In fact, their God talks to them even though they don't sacrifice their children. Don't you think you would want to know more about who this God is? Don't you think you would want to visit Israel? Don't you think you might want to live there and worship that God? But take it even further, let's say that you're excited about it, and you're going to go to Israel, and it's going to be awesome, but you're a little worried because you're not an Israelite. You're going to be an alien. You're going to be a refugee in another country. And from your country, you know aliens are mistreated, and you don't know if you want to go through with that. But then your friend tells you, no, 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 like, it's, it's weird, I'm telling you, but they don't even reap all of their crops. They leave food for people who need it. Like, you're going to be taken well care of when you go to Israel. Don't you think you'd be thinking, this God loves me? Even though I'm not an Israelite, this God sees me. This God has made a way so that if I go and live there and I'm a stranger in a foreign land, I'll be taken care of. Even though I'm not an Israelite, even though I'm not one of his people, this God still loves me? I think you would. Take it even farther. Let's say you go there and you are an alien, but you can't be that way for long. You can't live as an alien for a long time, so you need to get a job. You need to start pulling your weight. More than likely, that means you're going to become a slave. And you know from your country, slaves are poorly mistreated. You could murder a slave on the spot and nobody would do anything. Because slaves are not even people. But then again, your friend tells you, no, no, no. In Israel, if you mistreat a slave, you have to pay a penalty. Their God loves everyone. Their God loves even the slave, even the person that you have been conditioned to think isn't a real person, their God values them. Wouldn't you want to know more about that God? When we follow God, when our desires and our will are God's will, when we live and follow him to the best of our ability, people learn who he is. People begin to see God when we follow him. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want our will to be God's will? Do we want our values to be God's values? It's probably going to be uncomfortable for us because we have desires and we have wills, we have values that God might not have. And so he's going to work with you on it. It's going to feel really uncomfortable. Ultimately, it's for the better because God knows what's good. If you want to know who God is, yeah, you can read Leviticus. Go for it. That'd be great. But something you can also do is get acquainted with the life and teachings of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the author says this, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. 
In other words, when you see Jesus healing people in the New Testament, you're watching God heal people. When you see Jesus touching lepers and touching sick people and drawing near to them and loving them, you're watching God do that. When you see Jesus teaching on lust and greed and violence and love and sacrificial generosity, when you see Jesus giving his life so that people can be made right with God, you're watching God do it. And when we follow through with these things, when we value these things and we follow through, people learn who God is. I would like to close with a story, just as an amazing example of what this looks like. Last year, right around this time, my wife and I fell into some pretty intense financial trouble. My wife had just had some pretty minor surgery in January, and then we were trying to buy a new house, but we had to back out of our contract, and that cost a lot of money. All that is to say that in the span of like two days, my wife and I suddenly owed like $3,000, and that's not money that we had at that time. And so we did what we know Scripture calls us to do, and we cried out to God, we gave it over to him and said, hey, you know what, whatever happens, like, you got this, and we'll just follow along with you. Two days later, I find an envelope in my mailbox here at the church. It's anonymous. Nobody's put their name to it. There's $2,000 in it. And the note simply said, like, I don't know why, but I felt moved to give this to you. Naturally, I bawled my eyes out because that's awesome. And I was freaking out because, like, holy moly, look at the miraculous timing of this. But when I share this story with people who don't know God, they don't care about the miraculous timing. That's not what stands out to them. What stands out to them is that a person would give $2,000 to someone, do it anonymously, no recognition whatsoever, and they don't expect it to be paid back. They're astounded by that. And when they ask the question, who would give $2,000 to someone, not caring that they know who you are, not expecting you to be back, who would do that? The answer is Jesus. Jesus would do that. And whoever you are, I still have no clue who you are. If you're in this room, thank you. We needed it. But in that, you, you love Jesus. You followed through. And because of that, people are learning about who God is. When we follow after God and we do the things that he calls us to do, when we make our will his will and our values his values, not only do people learn who he is, but the kingdom is foreshadowed and people are drawn in. Just as God is holy, so you are holy. So look like it. I'm going to call the Peter and Steve up. The Peter. He's going to lead us in worship, but I will, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, Lord, and thank you for the book of Leviticus. Lord, we know that it's, it's a book that can be hard for us to go through because there are a lot of laws, there's a lot of nitty-gritty stuff in there, and it can feel overwhelming. But we know from your word that everything that's in Scripture um, is good. Everything points us back to Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for Leviticus. I pray, Lord, as we go from this place, that we would have a hunger for you, that we would have a hunger to know more about you and to live out what it is that we learn. I pray that you would shower us with grace. I pray that you would give us, remind us of the good news of the gospel, that there is no other God that would give his life for us, that it doesn't matter where we are, it doesn't matter if we're in another nation, it doesn't matter if we've lived lives that we feel like make us not worthy of, of love, that you gave your son so that all of us, no matter who, no matter what, can become a child of God. 
So Lord, remind us of the gospel, remind us of your grace, and reveal yourself to us in your name. Amen.